Welcome to Nursing Uncharted, a space to explore the rawness, realness, and boundless possibilities of nursing. Each episode, I'm sitting down with nurses to share our experiences from the field and hope to bring you laughter and inspiration as you navigate this demanding yet fulfilling profession. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a guest. And let's get started with this episode. and you are listening to Nursing Uncharted, a podcast designed to help you discover uncharted territory in nursing. Thank you so much for listening to us this week and every week while we talk about different specialties and uncover their stories and experiences. This episode is a part two of an operating room series that we started a few weeks back with episode 11, where we had Andrea Dyer, a pediatric travel OR nurse, talk to me about the ins and outs of the OR nursing realm and also advocating against bullying in the workplace. This episode shifts our focus to another hot button issue within the OR setting, and that is the presence of surgical smoke. We will talk about what surgical smoke is, how it affects us, and what we can do about mitigating those effects in our respective facilities. So here to shed some light on this topic is Vanjie Dennis. Vanjie is the Assistant Vice President for Perioperative Services at ANMED, a third designation magnet facility located in Anderson County, South Carolina. Vanjie is currently president-elect for the National Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses, or AORN. Her professional affiliations include AORN, American Organization for Nursing Leadership, or AONL, Laser Institute of America, and the American Society for Lasers in Medicine and Surgery. She's on the editorial board for the Journal for Clinical Laser Medicine and Surgery, OR Today, and Outpatient Surgery. Vanjie is on the board of directors for Laser Institute of America, the chair for the National Certification on Lasers, Board of Laser Safety, Board of Commissions, and representative for the American National Standards Institute. She's a recipient of numerous awards and recognitions and a member of the Emory Alpha Epsilon chapter of the Sigma Theta Tau International Honor Society of Nursing. So Vanjie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Maggie. It's an honor and a pleasure um, to be able to talk in detail a little bit about what we're subjected to in the operating room. Yeah, so I mean, it's such an honor to talk to you today about this yeah. issue and you're something that you're so well-versed and <laughs> passionate about. I had a great conversation with Andrea, so I'm so glad that she steered us to you today so to, to talk about this. Well, you're, you're welcome. But um, a lot of people have a misconception of surgical smoke, and sometimes it's referred to as plume. Uh, you know, it depends on what professional organization, you know, you've got the International Council on Smoke Plume, but anything that generates that vapor, but mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're very familiar with the word smoke. So you're going to yeah. see that autonomously used with plume. And even in the NIOSH um, overview that we sent out through the Association of Perioperative Nurses, we refer to it as smoke because that's okay. the common nomenclature, but, um, sure, sure. you know, okay. uh, I'm sure you're probably going to ask me, what is smoke? Um, and, and it's exactly what you're used to, whether it's cigarette smoke or fajita smoke, or you're out there grilling a steak, it's smoke. But what we, how we control bleeding in surgery is with heat generated devices. Yes. And the byproduct, just like cooking a piece of meat, this sounds pretty gross, the byproduct is smoke. And yeah. that, that's what the byproduct is of 
of actually um, controlling that bleeding is mm -hmm. heat generation in the byproduct is human body part smoke is what it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, and the types of procedures, I mean, when I think of, so a lot of nurses don't generally think of surgical smoke in there other outside of the OR, you know, um, right. but except you, sometimes you'll be in procedural areas or, you know, myself, I'm an ICU nurse. And so sometimes we'll have endoscopy, you know, GI come up and do an endoscopy or something. Yeah. And we might be exposed to some of that cautery, you know, in, in the room itself. So I just want to kind of start with the very basics, like you were talking about, just to kind of get a sense of, you know, what, what we are talking about here. So what are some of the different surgeries, I guess, that would be more high risk for, you know, that those, those type of, you know, that require that use of heat mm -hmm. um, device? Well, if you think about heat generated sources, and that's the, the cartery or the bovi or the electrosurgical unit, it could be lasers, it's anything that produces heat when it impacts tissue. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, what are your high risk procedures? Well, 98% of your procedures use that, you know, generate some type of smoke, 98% right. of what 90%. we do. And, and when you look at the byproducts of that, what is high risk? It's, it's kind of like, well, can you hurt yourself with a shotgun if you shoot yourself? Can you hurt yourself with, with a regular 45? It, 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 it talks about the exposure time and the amount of smoke that's produced in the case can vary okay. for case to case. So it, it is one more high risk than the other. The constituents of surgical smoke are the same, whether it be a five-minute tonsillectomy or a three-hour um, uh, reduction or breast reduction or hernia repair. You're mm -hmm. just going to have more exposure because those procedures generate more smoke, but one is no less detriment for the exposure of our team than, than the other. And I think that's real mm -hmm. important take home. Yeah, really, because you would think the amount of time would be a factor there, but it's really, you know, the surgery itself or just the being exposed at, just, at such like a rapid yeah. Just rapid being rate. exposed. Maggie, that was a good point, which helps me clarify it a little bit. It is the amount of time, but mm -hmm. it's the time that the nurse and the surgical tech are in that operating room. And there may be a run on an eight hour shift, just like ICU nurse, you have about eight, hopefully eight hours worked in today's COVID world. Um, <laughs> but we're in there five to seven days a week. Right. Where right. your surgeon may have a run or may have a block one to two days a week, our exposure rate for ana CRNAs, anesthesia or PAs, AAs, mm -hmm. whatever you have in your hospital facility, the circulating nurse, the scrub nurse, the scrub tech, we're exposed at a much higher time rate because we're in there all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, it's, it's. And I want to get into, you know, exactly like what the effects of surgical smoke are, sure. because that's what I was, you know, really interested in thinking of all the people that are in there day in, day out. Mm -hmm. You know, I was reading through one of these presentations that you give nationally and some of the facts about surgical smoke are so startling. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, just I was reading just four to six hours of being in the OR exposed to this smoke equals like 27 to 30 cigarettes or that's correct. I mean, so speak to some of the, you know, the, the worst harmful effects that, that are coming of producing surgical smoke. 
Yeah, you became well-versed in that. You know, uh, we've done research since early 1985 when NIOSH did some of the initial studies on surgical smoke. And nothing's really changed. We can research and research. And, I mean, we have up-to-date research, 2020 and 21. Mm -hmm. you, you're not smoking filtered processed tobacco. And this is not a judgment call on cigarette smokers. But you are processed filtered tobacco and what we are smoking is the byproducts of human body parts no matter mm -hmm. whether it's a hernia repair or whatever the constituents of of the carcinogens are more mutant genetic than what you'd get in a cigarette smoke now not even caught talking about the mm -hmm. transference of viruses and bloodborne pathogens and other particulates um you have a hundred over 140 150 different chemicals depending on the type of case we're doing and those chemical levels mm -hmm. are things like formaldehyde benzene and those are the carcinogens, um, not including the high risk of the viruses and the bacterias. You have so many different um, sizes of particulates, but yeah. the heat generation, unlike a cigarette, vaporizes small, small particulates. And the mm -hmm. farther, the smaller the particulate, the further the, that, that smoke will travel or aerosol in the room. So they are as small as 0.1 microns. Uh, right. What does that mean? That's that particular is small enough to get in the alveoli of your lungs. Yeah. And, and the transference is very, very similar to that of c cigarette smoke. It goes to all parts of the body. Yeah. I want to pull some because I definitely don't want to quote, misquote it. And it just, even in my own lectures, it surprises me of, of some of the um, impact of that surgical smoke. Yeah. And I, I wanted to pull that research up. I should have had it ready. I was reading, I mean, it passes through not only the alveoli, but the placenta. I mean, yes, the lymphatic barrier, just, I mean, so you are exposed to, your whole body is exposed when you're, when you're absolutely in the room. And they tell, what do they tell, a, a, you know, a, a female that's pregnant is don't smoke cigarettes. So I'll right. give you an example of the particulates and how much gets inhaled. And we're talking about maybe one surgical case. Remember, we're in there five to seven days a week, all day long. Right. They're in there, do the case, and they leave. There is what we call particulate counts. And remember I said these particulates mm -hmm. can be large dust as small as 0.1 microns that go mm -hmm. deep into your lungs. Mm -hmm. A count on a standard incisional hernia repair, most of us know what that is if you're in healthcare, has mm -hmm. 292,000 per cubic centimeter for an incisional hernia repair of particulates. And that is not isolated to those individuals at the surgical field, but it aerosols and can travel throughout the entire operating room, even into the air vents uh, that can go into the hall uh, of the OR suite. A liver resection mm -hmm. has 490,000 cubic uh, centimeters of, of particulates. And then the average tidal volume when we breathe in is 500 cc's uh, during an incisional hernia repair, which means the surgical field or the individuals in the surgical fields breathes in, you're going to die, 146 <laughs> million particles per breath, and 70% of those are less than the 0.3 micron size. Oh, my God. So, so not only do you have all the same effects that cigarette smoke has, only one gram of tissue vaporized by um, uh, a um, 
a, a, a CO2 laser, or which is a common instrument we use, is equivalent to smoking three unfiltered cigarettes, not including the bloods and the viruses and everything else that are trans, transmitted through there. But one gram of tissue by the device we use in 98% of our procedures, the electrosurgical unit or cartery, mm -hmm. is equivalent to smoking six unfiltered cigarettes. So wow. we're talking a gram, which if I did this, is probably that big and yeah. we're breathing it all day. And I think what's happened with us in healthcare, remember bloodborne pathogens. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if it, I can remember 25 years ago, nobody thought anything about getting splashed with blood. That was your badge of honor as a surgical nurse. You got to come out with blood on your outfit yeah. here. And now we're PPE and all the mm -hmm. COVID, SARS and tuberculosis and how important PPE is in every area we work in nursing. And then ergonomics came with patients of size and nurses and, and mm -hmm. surgical techs and everybody was pulling out their backs and we had right. hover mats and all this stuff for transporting yeah. patients from bed to stretcher and vice versa. It, but why are we taking so long to put in safety devices? And then uh, patients, uh, not patients, staff was coming down with nonspecific lymphoma and leukemia mm -hmm. due to not having scavenger systems on the anesthesia machines because the constant exposure to the anesthesia gases. And lo and behold, DNV and Joint Commission now says you will have scavenger devices on there mm -hmm. to protect the staff. Uh, because this is exposure is really not good to see those anesthetic gases all coming yeah. and smelling it. I can even remember almost falling asleep in my earlier years as a nurse because it was no scavenger. It's like everybody has to be on their game when yeah, they surgery, yeah. let alone. What is yeah. a scavenger device specifically? It's, it's on the anesthesia machine and we have all types of anesthetic gases that put patients to sleep and it keeps the leakage at a minimum exposure to the staff that are always in that room. Okay. So we implemented all these safety devices and here we've been using surgical uh, devices to vaporize tissue with uh, Dr. Bovey and Dr. Cushing for years. And we are like the other protective equipment. We didn't think anything of it. And now it's all mm -hmm. coming to fruition that through research, we found out how yeah. bad it is for us to smell it and be exposed. We want to take a quick break from this episode to talk about the industry leader in travel nurse staffing, American Mobile. Combining the largest network of facilities and providers in the country with top-level benefits like higher earning potential, premium health insurance, and 401k matching, American Mobile puts you in the driver's seat of your travel nursing career. Make sure to visit AmericanMobile.com today to discover a world of adventure with American Mobile. That's AmericanMobile.com the first step towards your next travel nursing adventure. What, what do nurses and, you know, OR staff say? I mean, what's their reaction when you tell them, you know, this with this information? I mean, is there, how have we not combated this yet? I feel like, I mean, but like you said, you know, it, it's just things come to fruition and then, then it takes time. But I mean, we've just been, I feel, I feel for all of the OR nurses, you know, and the staff that has probably had, you know, chronic illnesses or asthma or, you know, however, however it's affected them long-term. I think it's come to visibility. 
um, over 20 some years of research and now we're seeing the repercussions. At the Georgia Council of Perioperative Nurses, we held a conference that specifically addressed um, air quality in the OR, including surgical smoke. And Angela Holmes was a, um, and actually she worked with me at Gwinnett years ago. She had stage four lung cancer directly mm -hmm. associated with the exposure to the surgical smoke. So yeah. we're hearing and now seeing validated research over cumulative years. And, and I think that's the, the passion and the fight nurses and techs are doing today to get law passed. Right. So, so the first thing they say to me is, why did we need a law? Uh, why don't we just use it? Because it's, I say this respectfully, the OR is a revenue generating service line. Mm -hmm. And it usually caters to what the physicians are comfortable with. And mm -hmm. you can't mandate something unless it becomes law. It is like what Joint Commission does, even though they're not regulatory or DMV. But if they say do it or CMS says do it, we better do it. So I, I think pushing those, um, those regulations, recommendations um, will come. And it's starting to come mm -hmm. state by state. There's, I think, if I think about it, there's Denver, um, not, excuse me, Colorado, uh, Oregon, Rhode Island. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, there's, I think there's four states or five states now that have law passed on this. Okay. But, but that was a big, big focus no more than a month ago. Um, so what, what Council. does the law, um, you know, what, it, what's in that bill? What's in the law that, what are, what are we regulating to what extent? We're not, the, the law is not saying, you know, how you hook up. That's a clinical decision because mm -hmm. there's multiple we, means of decreasing potential exposure. But the law is saying you will use local exhaust ventilation. And some mm -hmm. of the counter argument is the air exchanges in the room, which in an operating room or procedure room should be 20 to 24. That air exchange is not enough to bring it to baseline level, levels contiguously. That is that mm -hmm. misunderstanding. So we've got to convince them that wall suction does, does not do it, nor does it have enough pull to capture the viruses and the blood and all that aerosolization that occurs with it. So the law will say use local exhaust ventilation and enforce policy uh, compliance and policy um um, to put a policy in place at the institutions. So if you got a policy, you got to abide by it. Mm, so it's okay. more forceful than just recommending a guideline. I see. I see. What has been, I mean, some of the barriers, the biggest barriers, I guess, for implementing some of those measures to mitigate smoke in the in yeah. facilities? Um, surgery has got a culture or rhythm. And I've been smoke-free in all five institutions over 25 years without law. And my take-home is, is don't interrupt the culture of surgery. It's kind of like getting in your car. Yeah, you put a seatbelt on, but it's not a guarantee that everything is going to be perfect. Surgery itself is an inherent risk for us that's in working or scrubbing. You can stick yourself with needles and splash yourself and smell smoke. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing is when we implement a change is to involve your physicians and your nurse and tech champions mm -hmm. in learning how to hook up appropriately so you still are in the business to do surgery safely because right. everybody comes up and wants to hook all this stuff up. In the meantime, the tool becomes worse than the disease and you can't treat the patient. Yeah. So um, good practices for hookup. Um, make sure that we can still do the surgery with it not 
weighting down the delivery device or the pencil because everybody starts putting the stuff on the pencil. There's all kinds of creative ways. But the take home is um, don't interrupt the culture of surgery. And it mm. can be successful. We converted in 60 days at this last hospital I was here. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, essentially, I mean, we are holding ourselves back by being reluctant to change in a sense because of the culture that, yeah, you it's know, a culture tough it thing. out and, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So what, so we we're talking a little bit about solutions, but what specifically solutions are in place um, to create a smoke-free environment? Um, that's the, I always call that the $50,000 question. And, <laughs> and, and you saw that in my presentation. It's um, how do you implement smoke evacuation processes? And there is a sequence of events um, for implementing that um, that process. First, you, you definitely, if we don't think we do, have to get administrative support. And that means financial support. And I definitely include my infection preventionist, um, maybe my safety committee. And, and then the choosing of physician and nurse and tech surgeons, champions that believe or are passionate about it. I always try to do a pretest or a gap analysis to see what is the reluctance because it's been out mm -hmm. there for a while. Um, and that way, you know how to educate our surgeons and our staff. I make sure that there is evidence-based substantial resources within the last five years, because I could bring a resource paper to one of the docs that's 20 years old and he's going, well, you know, has anybody really ever proved this? Mm -hmm. the, the other thing is I never force product. And most companies are very aggressive. It's not ex that expensive. I think a, a Bovee pencil is $22 and a linear cutter is $600, okay? Mm. Not that one is more important than the other. And, and the corrugated tubing they use to connect to the machine is $5. So mm. I do a, what they call a tabletop. I don't force product evaluation on our surgeons because okay. you go in a room and they've never seen this and they go, what the heck? I'm trying to do surgery here, guys. <laughs> And then I so make is sure it the products themselves that that eliminate that smoke then, or is it localized vents, like you said, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. You have a local exhaust ventilation, which is a machine that filters down to the 0.1 microns and then has what, what they say, what we call a cubic foot per minute pull of up to 70 where wall suction is only five. So you got to have that pull. You got to pull it out of the way. Not nice. only filter it down, but you got to pull it out of the way. Then mm -hmm. you got to have uh, disposable devices that connect to it that capture the smoke. And sure. there's something as simple as, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen anesthesia tubing. It's about one and a half inch diameter and corrugated. And that creates what we call a vortex for removal. But you mm -hmm. also have smoke evacuation capture devices on the Bovee pencil. Okay. Uh, or you have a telescoping um, connectors to the Bowie pencil so it gets right at the site. Well, okay. the, that's the doctor's pencil. That's their, that's their um, surgical device that they use. Right. And I can't tell them what they're comfortable with or what they're Yeah, they're not, not going to give that up easily. Yeah. No. So we let them choose. And by doing that, we set a tabletop up. And that tabletop helps them play with a lot of this stuff before they use it on a patient. Then we did something kind of creative. Um, we hooked up like a 0.1 micron. Remember these viruses and particulates are very small. Mm -hmm. And we put these inline filters between the wall suction and our suction canister. Now, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it captures the virus because the flow of the wall suction is only at five cubic foot per minute. But doing mm -hmm. that, 
we can at least in, like you said, when an ICU, when you're doing GI cases where you get small puff of smoke, it will capture that. Okay. And, and then when you get everybody on board with all this education, we set a go live date and that's what we did. And then we monitored the practice and then we post tested them again. We said, it's not a pass or fail, but you could see a significant difference when the education was delivered. And, after we've done all that and people get comfortable with it, then we write a policy so we know we can adhere to that policy. But I see. this formula is what I've used in all five hospitals where I've gone smoke-free. And That's it's amazing. Worked. Yeah. So you, so then you're not seeing, you know, harmful effects of smoke in the OR anymore when these when these policies are in place, when you have this combination of devices well, and localized. Exhaust. Anytime you change culture or practice, you got to monitor for compliance, no matter what mm -hmm. service line you're in. So it, the ball doesn't stop it implementation. Um, mm -hmm. You got to change that culture because yeah. let's say, not that I'm leaving, but if I left my institution and somebody did not keep the ball going with that culture or instill or hardwire, then they're going to go right back to start. Somebody's yeah. not a new person comes in. They're not going to open it up. And so you, you you've got to change that practice. And a, and a good example is when I was at Gwinnett hospital system, I was there about 24 years. We were smoke free long before. I think we were pioneers in, in smoke. And they even got to the point where the surgeons that I was used to working with goes, where, where's my smoke evacuator? And now I haven't been at Gwinnett in almost 15 <laughs> years and they're back to, they're back to start again because nobody is oh, supporting no. the practice. So now they're going back because they got new doctors, new staff, you know, that happens. Yeah. yeah and right. they're, they're trying to implement a practice change that was already there over 25 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Well, I'm glad that they're, they're full circle. Yeah, I know so. it does, <laughs> but we're hoping that it becomes just like ergonomics and yeah. PPE, that it becomes part of the practice of surgery, just like a bovie yeah. and a surgical table and instruments. Yeah, it is so true. You know, these ergonomic things and, you know, these things in practice, we just have to identify them, you know, and it's somebody has to say, I don't think this is healthy for the staff. I think that we probably need to change this. Like now we have hover mats that can, yeah. you know, just glide 350 pound patients, you know, I know. do that. Um, just, I mean, I think you need three people technically to do that, but it that makes them like 50 pounds, you know? Oh yeah. And, and you couldn't move patients before. So it's kind of the same concept. Yeah. It, it, that was a culture change. And now a nurse or transporter wouldn't even begin to move a 350 pound patient without some type of, of moving device. Right. Um, yeah. Right. That's very true. Going back to, um, I guess the accessibility of the, of these devices to make, uh, you know, procedure areas smoke free. I'm thinking of these times where endoscopy or GI has to do a road trip to a room. How accessible is it to bring those materials to, you know, on a road trip per se? Mm -hmm. That That's a great question. Um, you have different magnitudes of smoke that we said. You can have a little mm -hmm. bit exposure, but if you're supposed to all day long, seven days a week, it's still cumulative. It doesn't matter. So when mm -hmm. they're going to intensive care, they use wall suction for GI. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing about GI procedures, it's contained in the, the colonoscope, which you're not going to do, or the EGD scope. You can use Actually. something as simple as a 0.1 inline filter connected to the wall and to the scope 
um, to where it would capture it. And more times than not, you will not smell that smoke. And I know if you're an ICU nurse and they're, they're doing a bug bee electrode or or, or being coagulator to help control bleeding of ulcers mm -hmm. or whatever, you're going to mm -hmm. smell it. But that will yeah. keep down the smell significantly. And the importance is keeping it in a cl closed circuit. Now, what does that cost? If I showed, I think on the presentation, you could see a little filter. It's about this big mm -hmm. um, and it's clear. Cost ten dollars, and the limited life uses is once it changes color, you dispose of it. So you're talking pennies on the dollar for the rooms, yes. Right, and very efficient. Yep. Okay. What can we do as staff nurses to kind of implement if if we are in a facility that doesn't seem like they have any you know practices in in place? What can how can a staff nurse start to implement changes in their facility? I think the voice of the nurse, uh, in fact, that is our president's message is advocacy uh, this year. Mm -hmm. That's her theme. We have to advocate not only for each other, but the people who are in the room and actually smoke is not good for patients either, whether it's cumulative yeah. it, it, when it's in a laparoscopic or in their monitored anesthesia care delivery. So to advocate um, for that is to understand and be knowledgeable about what our potential exposure rate is in something like this. Mm -hmm. um, how I started in Emory, that was an easy conversion. Emory University Health System. And uh, I just went straight to the safety committee, infection prevention. I showed them the data and they went, oh my gosh, we have to do this. Boom, it was done. So mm -hmm. I think you got to hit, you got to talk to the right people that are going to mm -hmm. help support you. Um, you Definitely, as a staff nurse, you, you've got to prove the financial analysis and how that will impact you. Um, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of the impact. It's probably less than $20,000 per year per department for my financial mm -hmm. impact to make my team safe. Right. And um, I, I'll tell you, DNV and the OSHA alliance we have with ANMIT loved what we're doing to help protect uh, staff. Today's world is we are kind of scarce uh, with the nursing shortage and all. And mm -hmm. if now more than ever, we have to take care of our team. So it's advocacy yeah. is what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. And I know that we were talking a little bit about legislation. I mean, is there anything that we can do on that front to, you know, help our states, you know, kind of like facilitate on the legislative end? Absolutely. Well, that's, of course, getting nurses that are passionate and definitely from state to state there are. It's moving much faster where it was. Uh, it started in California 10 years ago installed and they went through OSHA. Oh, I think um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think what the acronym is for OSHA, Cal OSHA or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden it took a nurse who stood up with a lung transplant in Rhode Island to push the first bill that went into law. How we can get started is not only nurses that are passionate and educating our legislators and our senators, but mm -hmm. AORN, our Association of Perioperative Nurses, will help support states with lobbyists in uh, the Georgia, mm -hmm. like the Georgia Nurses Association. You're going to get involved there and in bringing everybody together. And that's what we're doing in Georgia. But every okay. state is replicating the same process and actually being very successful at it. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what states seem like they're pioneering this, you know, front to for safer workplaces? Um, there is Colorado, there is Rhode mm -hmm. Island, there is Kentucky. 
I forgot about it. There is Illinois and there's Oregon. So basically there's five states that have gone law with being smoke-free with legislation. Who is coming up the back, the back end now would be Georgia is heavy on lobbying. Florida, Indiana, mm-hmm. Maryland, New Jersey, Tennessee, Utah, Texas, and Washington. So um, I think once you get a lot of states that have converted, um, you know, another state's not going to want to harm our biggest commodity with oh, health care shortage. You, you know, they're going to join right in. So it, yeah. it is the pioneers that has already gotten the law passed that have made a difference. But our association will support um, nurses and operating room um, staff in helping to get this, um, be advocates for a smoke-free environment. Your hospitals are smoke-free, right? Can't smoke yeah. in the campus. Why are we smoking in the operating room? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't hear Virginia's name. We got to work on that. Yeah, I'm from Virginia. Shame on us, right? Oh, yeah, Yeah. right? Well, now that it's it's uncovered, now that it's exposed, we got to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is in store for the future of the OR? Do you think that we will ever, you know, move away from procedures that might produce surgical smoke in the future? Or are there... You know, I know we were talking about how lasers are are seem like they're kind of, you know, that the future in that way. Yeah. Um, you know, speak to that. What do you think is in store for the OR, for the future? Well, obviously, the more minimally invasive approach to surgery, the better outcomes for the patient. Mm-hmm. It's when minimally invasive procedures can give you a quality of clinical outcomes. You don't want to do it Mm -hmm. because it's the latest technology. But I'll I'll give you an example, like our our Mako robot, our our intuitive robot for laparoscopy and even image-guided surgery, uh, where we can actually see movement of instruments a millimeter from the site of target and not invade normal healthy tissue. Mm -hmm. I think we we will always have some exposure. That's the nature of the beast. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think we're anywhere near Dr. Spock. I still like old Star Trek where he waves a wand and cures everybody. (laughs) Uh, But I think for for less exposure to the staff is when we are not making large incisions and generating that smoke. But then we got to think about protecting our patient because it's going to be cumulative in their belly and wherever we're working. Um, But that's the key. It's a new technology uh, another would be telepresence or not telemedicine, but telepresence where you're working mm-hmm. remotely and the patient will be at a point, not in mine or your generation, where they'll be in an operating room with the robot doing the case and that exposure will be almost completely eliminated. Mm-hmm. There'll be micro robots where you can instill them. We we know we can in GI cases swallow a capsule and follow it all the way down mm-hmm. a little easier in the um, GI track to be able to do that. But um, I, I think minimally invasive technology will mm-hmm. make a difference in the outcome. They are even doing procedures, not quite well adopted, where we're pulling gallbladders out through an EGD scope. You would normally mm-hmm. have to cut or do a laparoscopic gallbladder. They are wow. doing common bile duct exploration and things all through that, oh. to the GI scope, EGD scopes. I'm sure that OR is such a cool field in that way. You can be just, you know, the top of innovation, you know, all of that stuff, like right when it comes out, that's, you know, that's, that's some pretty great stuff. Yeah, it is. It's exciting. Somebody said, well, you're on the wave of technology. Uh, 
if I'm on a wave, I've been on this wave 45 years. <laughs> it's a big one. Okay. I don't think yeah. it's a wave. It is probably yeah. changing now more for this generation of nurses coming in than ever before. Um, we have shortages. The technology boom is still there where it's very complicated, whether, I don't know if you've seen that cartoon about the ICU nurse and it's not really a cartoon. It's actually a really shot and there's lines and all this stuff hanging. And some of the docs have even come back to me and said, how do they figure all this stuff out? I said, I have no idea because <laughs> I'm in the operating room, but um, it, it is a complex world we're living in and we are bombarded by technology and we need to learn how to use it because it's making a difference in the outcome of our patients. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it takes people being motivated and people like you yeah. to, you know, really pioneer and just get the word out there. Mm -hmm. Things, you know, need to be changed and figure out how to implement that so that all of us can be safe. So yeah. I really appreciate everything that you do for your community and for Thank AORN. You. And, you know, I just, I appreciate you coming and talking to us today, today about surgical smoke. And it was a, it's an issue that I, as an ICU nurse, don't know a whole lot about. And I think that a lot of people are going to be really, you know, their eyebrows are going to raise for sure. I good. think that it's going to start a lot of good conversations that we need to have. So then I've done my job, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. And you're I welcome, will, Maggie. I hope this message passes on to a lot of people, people that need it to pass on to. Yeah. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in to Nursing Uncharted. To learn more about today's episode, make sure to explore the show notes at AmericanMobile.com slash Nursing Uncharted. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a guest. If you're a nurse interested in traveling, visit AmericanMobile.com to explore the largest database of travel nursing jobs in the industry and the amazing benefits that American Mobile has to offer. Also, a special thanks to producer Jonathan Carey, assistant producers Katie Schrauben and Sam McKay, and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. Until next time, take care of yourself.